Speaking of Faith is supported by the Pew Charitable Trusts. Investing in ideas, returning results. PewTrust.com. Additional support is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the John Templeton Foundation. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith, conversation about belief, meaning, ethics, and ideas. Today, two stories of war and surprising acts of reconciliation that followed. Bruce Weigel will take us into the terror and the beauty he found in Vietnam. But first, the story of four chaplains and nearly 700 other men who died on the troop ship Dorchester off the coast of Greenland in February 1943, the third largest American loss of life at sea in World War II. He eventually got his orders to go overseas, and it was a very difficult goodbye. And I looked at him through the windows of the train. I was crying, and he was crying, and uh, I knew I'd never see him again. At a time in America when religious identity kept Jews, Catholics, and Protestants apart, these four chaplains of different faiths gave away their life jackets, linked arms, and went down together praying with the soldiers who could not leave their ship. David Fox is founder and director of the Immortal Chaplains Foundation, and he has interviewed the surviving veterans of the Dorchester. The story of the Immortal Four Chaplains begins with, of course, the four men themselves, and they were unique in that they were all of different faiths and came together on this boat, a U.S. troop ship called the Dorchester, and they were Clark Poling, who was a Dutch Reformed minister from upstate New York, and then there was uh, Rabbi Alexander Good, who was... Uh, rabbi out of Washington, D.C. Um, my uncle, who was George Fox, he was a Methodist minister up in Vermont. He actually had three parishes at one time. Hmm. He was called a circuit rider even then. And um, last was the Catholic priest, Father Washington, from uh, New Jersey. And um, they met on the Dorchester um, at the end of January. 1943, and the I interviewed the first sergeant of the ship uh, who was on deck at the time when the four of them met. So that was interesting mm -hmm. because I actually got to experience what it was like to uh, know what they were like when they got together. And, uh, and he explained that they were um, immediate friends. They just sort of hit it off together and they started laughing and joking. And they had a, a bond almost immediately between the four of them. On board, the uh, chaplains began to organize uh, entertainment for the men, and the men would tell me in the interviews I did uh, that they were always together, and that was remarkable for oh, them. Was that their job? Yes, it was their job to, uh, to provide stimulation for the men, things for them to focus on other than knowing that there was a submarine out there, and they soon found out that they were, in fact, being trailed by submarines. So the chaplains uh, kept their spirits up. They uh, organized a uh, talent night, and apparently the chaplains were the biggest hit themselves. They were quite talented singers. I think all four of them were. And uh, uh, Rabbi uh, Good, uh, Alexander Good, was also the son-in-law of uh, rab another rabbi, Rabbi Jolson, who was the father of Al Jolson. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so he had uh, considerable uh, connections to show business. <laughs> so they became very, uh, very popular on the ship. Rabbi Good, he could sing with the best. He would hold his services as the others hold theirs. And we all went to all of them. We were on a ship. We had nothing that we could do. And so when they had services, we went. Lots of times they were together. They were going around and trying to keep morale up. And they all worked well together. They seemed to fit right in. But they just felt closer to Father Washington. He just seemed right at home, even in the atmosphere of a troop ship. 
There was a couple of fellas playing cards, and Father Washington came wandering through shortly after I got in there. I was watching the game. He came over and he stood behind the fellow, and, and his fellow turned around to him. He said, Father, would you bless my hand? He looked at it and he said, I should waste my blessing on a lousy pair of trays. I, I thought that that was just like him. The captain had just said that there was five, at least five submarines trailing us. They picked them up on radar. And they said, if they hit you, that's when he told us, if they hit you, you have to worry two minutes, you'll be dead. So I start making my rounds and went upstairs. I thought it'd be better to tell them then, take off her boots, put on her shoes. Boots are too heavy. Shoes are easy to remove. I walked that ship continuously talking to men. So uh, it was about one o'clock in the morning, I guess. And uh, there was one, one escort ship was a Coast Guard cut ahead of us and two on each side and the two freighters and we were in the middle. And uh, it only do about nine, 12 knots top speed. And the Dorchester was losing speed, you know, with the heavy seas. And we dropped back out of the convoy. And there we were set right in the open. And when we were in the open, that's when they hit us. And I was sitting in a, in a, in a stateroom right off the, uh, the starboard side I was on. And we're sitting there playing cards and I went to snap the cards down, and instead of saying, gotcha, I raised the card like that, everything went black. I said, what the hell was that? I said, we're hit. The Dorchester was 90 miles off the coast of Greenland, where the water temperature of the Atlantic in winter is roughly 36 degrees. A storm the night before had frozen many of the lifeboats to the railing. Life jackets, each with a small red locator light, offered the best, though still slim, chance for survival. I just come off guard, Dory. I took my jacket off, and the next thing you know, boom. And before you know it, the ship was rocking. And uh, who had uh, time to even think about a life jacket at that time? Again, David Fox, nephew of Chaplain George Fox. The chaplains organized the men. They would hand out these life jackets, put them on, and then they would lead them to a place where they could jump off and not be hurt. The uh, chaplains, without any hesitation, just simply took off their own jackets and placed them on the next man who was waiting there. Lights went out and steam pipes broke and screaming and a very, very strong odor of burnt powder, gunpowder. I had to talk to myself to fight off the panic, which I heard was going on. I crawled out on deck, and I looked around. There wasn't a soul on the ship, not a soul. It's always best to get as many people to abandon a ship with you, hold on or tie on with anything, so there'll be a group of lights. The Coast Guard sees a group of lights. That's where they're going first. But this way, it looked like a city out there with lights. It looked like a large city. And the ship now, by now, is floundering. And I look down toward the stern, toward the back of the ship. I see a bunch of heads moving. I was so happy that I got somebody to go man the ship with. I must have lit up like a 100-watt light bulb. I went down there. Good Lord. There's 10 men, not a word is said, not a word. All the men and the chaplains opened up a prayer, and I see that they were not going overboard. They were not going to abandon ship. They were going to hold our last service. I began to say my prayers, say my prayers and shed tears. I couldn't abandon ship there. I went back to the port side. Two feet to jump. As I jumped, the ship broke. A huge wave pulled me away from the ship. A little wave hit me, and I got a mouth full of oil. It was choking me, and I, and I heard a voice. Pull him up. There was a lifeboat there full of men. There was all, we must have about 20 guys on the raft. I remember they piled one on top of the other, you know. 
And uh, by the time they picked us up, I think we had six or seven left. You know, they got cold and froze and they just slid off. There's one guy hanging in the back of the raft. I held him up for, I don't know how long it was. Time don't mean nothing, you know. And finally he was dead. I, I had to let him go. We've seen bodies all around drifting. And as I say, the chill of the water uh, got most of them. And uh, they were just drifting around. You've seen those little lights bobbing up and down. And there was no life in the men that was in them either. We could look back and some flames, some uh, fire had broken out. And there was enough reflection of that in the water to be able to see the ship. There were soldiers hanging on to the rail of the ship. We had little red lights on our life preservers. As I turned around, I saw a sight that will forever be with me. It was the Dorchester making its last lurch into the water. And it looked like a Christmas tree. When she rolled, she rolled to starboard. And all you could see was the keel up there. And there were sort of four chaplets standing arm in arm on the top of the boat. And then the, the boat took a nose dive and went right down and they went with it. They never even made a move. They just joined hands and the four of them was two Protestants, a Hebrew chaplain, and a Catholic chaplain. I asked Father Watson, Father, get off the ship, the ship's going down. No, no, he says, go ahead, you get off, get off. Because the ship was starting to list. But uh, they made no attempt to get off at all. They just went down. Those who saw that, not everyone saw it, but those who saw it said they had never seen a finer, one man said, I never hope to see anything finer between here and heaven. Mr. Fox, I am writing a letter to you in remembrance to the event for nearly 55 years which led us together, and also the last living sailors of the German submarine U-223. During the war, everybody served and even died for his country. Your soldiers on the Dorchester, who couldn't not be rescued, as well as our sailors, who were defeated and drowned by the death charges of your destroyers. The four chaplains are genuine heroes, and her sacrifices has to be preserved for future generations. We have to learn out of the past for the future so that our children and grandchildren and further generations to come can live in peace. Never again should happen such a murderous war. Yours sincerely, Gerd Buske. Germany and interview the survivors of the U-boat to put the pieces together. Again, David Fox, who directs the Immortal Chaplains Foundation. There were about six of them still alive, so I was able to interview three of them, including the first officer of the submarine, who was the last surviving officer, and also the chief munitions 
uh, unteroffizier, he handled the torpedoes. Mm -hmm. He actually had his hand on the torpedo that sank the Dorchester and uh, interviewed him. And that was so moving to go to Germany and say, hello, um, you never met me, but you uh, killed my uncle 55 years ago or whatever it was. How did, he, story. how did he respond to meeting you? Uh, they were cautious at first, but when I said, I'm, you know, I'm coming not to blame you, but uh, to me that there are two sides of the story. You know, I think that must have been astonishing for these German veterans um, because they did lose the war and they are held responsible. The German people in general are held responsible for such horrendous crimes. They're not often offered forgiveness. That's right, and I felt that just as the chaplains reached out to each other, I said, I felt that as a representative of the families of the chaplains, I wanted to reach out to them because I, I felt that the chaplains would have forgiven them, and therefore my going uh, said that. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith with a program to commemorate Memorial Day. My guest, David Fox, has shared the informal interviews he conducted with the surviving veterans of the troop ship Dorchester, on which nearly 700 American soldiers died off the coast of Greenland in 1943. David Fox has also made contact with the veterans of the German submarine that torpedoed them, and they, like the American soldiers who witnessed the event, have been profoundly affected by the legacy of four chaplains of different faiths who linked arms and went down together with their ship. In 1997, David Fox created the Immortal Chaplains Foundation in Minnesota. The Foundation awards an international prize for humanity to recognize acts of faith and reconciliation, which counterbalance more familiar images in our world of violence. The first prize was given posthumously to um, a man on board one of those Coast Guard cutters, the Comanche, and his name was Charles W. David, and he was a black man, and he was a big man. He was from New York City. And when that ship, the Dorchester, went down, he went over the side of the Comanche and pulled up white men mm. in 36 degrees temperature water. Sometimes, they said, two at a time. And Charles W. David died of exposure, of pneumonia, because he did that. After saving all those lives. After saving those lives. Uh, Dick Swanson, who was his comrade on board, came and accepted the award in his place. He was a shipmate. Dick is white. Charles was black. And when again, we're talking 1943. 1943. Yeah. And when that ship went into the port in St. John's, Newfoundland, they couldn't go to the same place together. They couldn't go into the same club. They couldn't go uh, do things together. They were segregated. Mm. And yet he did that with his life. So that was the first prize. And then the second one was to a young girl, a young American girl from California. Amy Beale, mm -hmm. who went to South Africa and was stoned to death. Uh, she went there to fight apartheid and ironically was bringing a black friend back to their home in the Soweto neighborhoods. And she was stoned to death by a group of black people. And her mother and father came from California to accept that award. And it was Archbishop Desmond Tutu who presented the award. Mm -hmm. And that meant a great deal to him. I remember that story clearly. It was so stunning yeah. that they also went and testified at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, right? Exactly. And asked that the, and the killers of Amy be forgiven. Mm. You, you also, I believe, arranged for some of the German sub-veterans to meet. Did they meet the veterans Quite. of the Dorchester? Yes. When uh, Rosalie, the rabbi's daughter, and I, we started to share how important it would be to keep the story alive, but also to tell the story of others who have done this. So um, I contacted uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu in South Africa, and I asked him if he would be a part of this. And uh, it was such a great uh, thing for him to come here and participate in our first event in Minneapolis. Some of us might preach eloquent sermons 
about laying down one's life. They lived out their sermons. Isn't that a wonderful sentence, that? They lived out their sermons by dying. Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains barren, it remains alone. If it dies, it brings forth abundantly. Have we not here in the saga of these four wonderful men an extraordinary illustration of both of these sayings. They should have disappeared from the face of the earth as they did physically, as they went down into the icy cold waters of the Atlantic. But isn't it extraordinary that now the opposite has happened that instead of oblivion and forgetfulness, they receive glory and honor for greater love than this has no one. That a person should lay down their life for their friends. Archbishop Desmond Tutu, preaching at the first award ceremony of the Immortal Chaplain's Prize for Humanity in Minneapolis in 1998. The following year, the prize recipients included Paul Recessa Beghini, a Rwandan hotel manager who sheltered 1,000 people of the Tutsi tribe, while 800,000 others were slaughtered by his own Hutu tribesmen. David Fox counts as one of his great memories, an unsolicited visit he received after that award from a later prime minister of Rwanda. It turned out that he was one of the people Paul Recessa-Beghini kept alive in his hotel. David Fox. This is something that is beyond my anticipation, yes. my expectations. I had no idea that we would touch people in this way. Well, you know, there's there's something in this story about about ripple effects and about exactly. the larger unseen possibilities in a moment and it doesn't it doesn't take the tragedy away but there was so much reconciliation and and compassion and goodness that was possible to come out of that over time and it's true of every other story you've told me all of your other recipients of the right. award right and i have to mention one other thing too i was scheduled to go and talk to a school a high school on a, a day in April that was the day after the Columbine, Colorado massacre, I got a letter from the, uh, from the principal uh, the next week. And he said, after you spoke to the students on that day, he said, the following assembly, students started to get up and publicly apologize to people uh, that they had pushed out and made to feel less than themselves. And he said it was that the combination of that story of the, what the chaplains did and the catharsis of, of Columbine, the recognition of not having compassion, excluding people, pushing people apart. He said that story that you told has an amazing power to it. So that's why we feel it's important to keep this alive. I think that that simple act, simple, but it was great, has changed my life. I, I try to do more for people. I don't worry about me so much. I'm, I'm doing something for somebody else. A veteran of the troop ship Dorchester from the audio archives of David Fox. This is Speaking of Faith. After a short break, we'll return with Vietnam veteran and poet Bruce Weigel. 
His writing enlarges comprehension of the Vietnam War and the possibilities of the human spirit. I'm Krista Tippett. Stay with us. Audio cassettes and transcripts are available by calling 1-800-777-TEXT or by visiting our website at speakingoffaith.org. Speaking of Faith is produced by Minnesota Public Radio and distributed by PRI. Welcome back to Speaking of Faith, conversation about belief, meaning, ethics, and ideas. I'm Krista Tippett. Today, a special program on sacrifice and reconciliation to commemorate Memorial Day. My next guest, Bruce Weigel, went to Vietnam as a soldier in 1968, one of the two and a half million Americans who served there from the early 1960s until the Paris Peace Agreement of 1973. Over 58,000 American soldiers were killed in Vietnam and over 300,000 wounded. Today, Bruce Weigel is a poet. His book, The Circle of Hine, chronicles the long personal journey he's made back to Vietnam and to the adoption of a beloved Vietnamese child. The paradox of his life as a writer, he says, is that the war ruined his life and gave him his voice. First, it was adventurous, but then quickly that turned into something very different after I saw the first injured people that I, that I was forced to confront. I think the first person I saw seriously injured was a Vietnamese farmer who had uh, stepped on an American landmine, and he happened to be in a field hospital in Camp Evans where I was stationed for my base camp, and half of his body was gone, yet he was still alive and screaming. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget his face. and. I'll never forget those screams. And then suddenly, one minute, I was one person, and after experiencing just that first incident, I was another person. And I suddenly began to realize that I had no idea what I was in for and and where I was and what I was doing. There is also this remarkable source of a gift, really, and a salvation in your story in that you had this occasion to begin to read. Yes. I guess it turns out to be my good fortune to have uh, gotten a really bad case of dysentery and got sent back to a larger base camp at a place called Anke. And I was laying in a, on a cot, recovering, and a Red Cross volunteer came through the tent where I was with other six soldiers, and he had a box of paperback books, and he was just tossing them to people, saying, here, read this. And he tossed one to me, and I really didn't have that much interest, although I started reading. I couldn't pronounce the names in the book, yet there was a quality to the voice that was telling the story. And that, the book was? Crime and Punishment, Dostoevsky's great novel, Crime and Punishment. I think not a bad first book for a writer to read. <laughs> I wonder if that newfound dream was one thing that sustained you in that time, even before you yourself did begin to write. I, yeah, I think it did. Uh, the sense that I had this desire to want to somehow record what I was seeing around me was something that sustained me. And just the love of, uh, the love of words that I was already beginning to feel. It seems to me there are some, some words that you use a great deal and they become very evocative. Um, uh-huh. And one of those words is enormity. What do you think of or what stories do you think of when you say that word? I think I think of divinity, however you want to call that, God, uh, powers greater than myself, uh, the enormity of the historical forces that were at work. You know, I could never at that time as an 18 or 19-year-old have articulated any of this. But, you know, I was like a sponge. Ignorance served me well. I was too stupid to realize that I couldn't do what I had in mind that I wanted to do. 
but I must have had some kind of vague sense that I was witness to the great machine of history right before me. When you were in Vietnam, did you have a sense of divinity, even an ironic one? Well, yeah. I was raised a Catholic, and I I always loved uh, church as a kid. I always felt great uh, peace and salvation and grace uh, when I went to Mass and and great peace when I went to confession and communion. And then uh, when I was in the war, I actually witnessed a priest in preparation for our assault at Quezon in 1968, which was one of the largest, supposed to be one of the largest battles of the war, blessing a cache of, of uh, armaments. And I immediately said, this is wrong. This is not, you know, the God that I grew up loving, the Jesus that I grew up loving wouldn't do this, wouldn't bless these things that are going to be sent out to murder human beings any minute. So uh, I let go of my ties to the church. And although I never let go of my belief in that which we call divinity, um, you know, the officialdom of the church in that context was heartbreaking almost for me. Uh, I think I got lost for a long time without the church because I don't think I realized how important it had been to me until I was without it. the qualities that seem to be part of the relationship that you eventually had with Vietnam seem to me to be sacred religious qualities of compassion, reconciliation. I'd like to know, I'd like to hear about how you ended up having had this experience, which was devastating in many ways, how you've come to see Vietnam now as the home of your heart and, uh, and you have so many connections with the place. Yeah, great. I, and then I have to go back just a little bit further okay. because I have to say that when I was there, I really loved uh, the Vietnamese people that I had contact with. And I thought, in spite of uh, all the bad stuff that was happening around me, that it was an absolutely breathtakingly beautiful place. I like the food. I like the people. I like the landscape. These are things that one would not admit to one's comrades in that context. It would have been uh, absurd. They would have thought I was crazy or that something was wrong with me if I would have shared any of this. And I always had a sense that I wanted to go back. And then, lo and behold, 20-odd years later, I was invited uh, by uh, the offices of a retired North Vietnamese general uh, in Hanoi uh, in the early 80s. Uh, not many Americans had gone back to Vietnam. I think we were the maybe the second group. I agreed to go on this trip thinking that it would never happen. Uh, you know, there was still an embargo and, and travel was literally impossible. Uh, and suddenly the trip came through and I found myself uh, in Bangkok picking up a visa and <laughs> an hour and a half later and landing in the Noi Ba airport in Hanoi, Vietnam. We were received, I have to say, with such uh, absolute kindness and generosity of spirit that I was suspicious. I just couldn't believe after what we had done to those people in that country that we would be received this way. And I thought, something is up here. Uh, What do they want? Fortunately, that first trip, I got very close to that general and to a few other friends, Vietnamese friends that I made, and I got to see that, in fact, there was nothing dubious about their attitude. Their attitude was that we had been in a war together, we had been soldiers on the opposite side, now that was over. And I began to learn over the years upon um, my many trips back that, in fact, the Vietnamese love a great deal about our country. Ho Chi Minh had a copy of our Constitution on his table when he wrote really? his own. Yeah. <laughs> They love our, our independence of spirit. They love our sense of humor, our openness. Uh, they're very much like us in many ways. Uh, d- didn't yeah. you also go at some point with other veterans who had become writers? Yeah. In 1990, we had a, a remarkable uh, conference with half a dozen or so American writers who had been uh, soldiers in the war, including a few journalists. And uh, we met with 50 Vietnamese writers who had also fought in the war. On the side of the on the side of the North uh, Vietnamese Army, and some were uh, popular resistance soldiers. You know, we would start comparing notes about where we were and when we were there, and, and it wasn't unusual for some of us to find men on the other side that we had literally fought against. Mm. 
that, you know, we could have killed each other on that day, and it didn't happen. And, you know, just the thought of that was enough to make me pause. In those meetings, then, I mean, were you able to forgive each other and, and also to forgive yourselves? Yeah, I, I think that, that uh, you know, their forgiveness was so was so overwhelming that it was almost enough for everyone to go around. <laughs> but in terms of forgiving myself, I think that it has a lot to do with, with the kind of command that you were associated with. Uh, I was with the First Air Cav, which had an absolutely great command, and there was no nonsense in my outfit. There was no uh, no abuse of civilians. As a matter of fact, we had very, very little contact with uh, people when we were out in the field. So I think that I can say I don't feel like I did anything that I'm ashamed of as a soldier. It was more, it wasn't that kind of forgiveness. It was more, I think, a forgiveness of just having bore witness to that, that there's a way in which once you cross certain lines about killing and seeing killing and being so close to it, that it's hard then to be among the company of people who haven't been in that situation. And I think that's where the forgiveness part came in, that, that you know, that I felt for a long time unworthy of, of the love of those around me just because of what I had seen. and Vietnam veteran Bruce Weigel. This is a poem of my own called Song of Napalm, which is dedicated to my wife. After the storm, after the rain stopped pounding, we stood in the doorway watching horses walk off lazily across the pasture's hill. We stared through the black screen, our vision altered by the distance, so I thought I saw a mist kicked up around their hooves when they faded like cutout horses away from us. The grass was never more blue in that light, more scarlet. Beyond the pasture, trees scraped their voices into the wind, branches crisscrossed the sky like barbed wire, but you said there were only branches, okay. The storm stopped pounding. I'm trying to say this straight. For once, I was sane enough to pause and breathe outside my wild plans. And after the hard rain, I turned my back on the old curses. I believed they swung finally away from me. But still the branches are wire and thunder is the pounding mortar. Still I close my eyes and see the girl running from her village, napalm stuck to her dress like jelly her hands reaching for the no one who waits in waves of heat before her. So I can keep on living, so I can stay here beside you. I try to imagine she runs down the road and wings beat inside her until she rises above the stinking jungle and her pain eases in your pain and mine. But the lie swings back again. The lie works only as long as it takes to speak, and the girl runs only as far as the napalm allows until her burning tendons and crackling muscles draw her up into that final position, burning bodies so perfectly assume nothing can change that. She is burned behind my eyes, and not your good love, and not the rain-swept air, and not the jungle-green pasture unfolding before us can deny it. The title poem in Bruce Weigel's 1988 collection, Song of Napalm. Six years later, in 1994, Bruce Weigel edited another poetry collection, which he himself translated. This collection is called Captured Documents, and it contains informal poems found in the diaries of captured or fallen North Vietnamese soldiers. They are predominantly love poems or verses of longing for family and home. I asked Bruce Weigel to read me his personal favorite, One Moonlit Night. Tonight the wind is cold on bamboo trees. The moon hides behind the mountain's top. In sadness, the river ripples. I received your letter and read it nervously through the night, and afterward I knew you grieved for me like a mother and wept. Nephews and nieces wait far away. Sorrowfully, aunts and uncles wait too. 
You beg me to come home, my love, to the family of our village, because my life is still full of sweet promise. You do not understand the way of the truth. Life must be spent for the people's good. I picked a violet to tuck into my book, tears mixed with the violet's ink to weave into my writing, all the wishes I send so you will understand. A reading from Captured Documents, Bruce Weigel's translation of poems found in the diaries of North Vietnamese soldiers. Weigel first became a reader and a writer while a soldier in Vietnam. He says that experience both ruined his life and gave him his voice. He's talking to me about the many ways in which he's made peace with Vietnam, a country which today he calls the home of his heart. As a teacher of college students, he also works to reconcile the mixture of honor and horror that characterizes the human experience of war. You know, I began to talk to my students years ago about the fact that, you know, all cultures like to look at these things as, as anomalies. And, you know, my question to them was, when are we going to stop saying it's unusual? We've always done it to each other. It's always been present. Well, not only, from, yeah, and there, but there's also a, a way in which we are fascinated by it. And there are ways mm-hmm. that people speak about it. There seems to be a beauty or an obsession um, that can come with the experience of war. Absolutely. You know, uh, Robert Stone talks about the beauty of the mushroom cloud, you know, which is an absolutely horrifying image if you think about all of its implications. But, you know, I think that it has to do with the absolute bare essential that you're stripped down to in that kind of context. I have a poem in which I say, say it clearly and you make it beautiful no matter what. There's a way in which language can make the most horrible thing uh, imaginable, beautiful, not because it celebrates that horror, but because through the language I think the human spirit transcends that horror. That I think to write the poem, to write the story, to write the novel, the memoir, or whatever about that horrible thing is in a way to defeat it or to take back your life from it. Is it true that you have become Buddhist? Yes, I have. I had met some monks in Vietnam. uh, While you uh, were there as a soldier? Once, when I was there as a soldier, yeah. I had a remarkable experience with some monks. And then... uh, Well, tell me about that. That's too intriguing. I guess the terrible and embarrassing irony is I was with a couple other GIs, and we were actually looking for women uh, of uh, ill repute. We can say that on the radio. Yes, you can. Uh, Prostitutes (laughs) and... I was led through this maze of uh, rooms and alleyways, and somehow I got separated from my friends, and I I ended up in this room, and there were two or three monks sitting on the floor (laughs) chanting, and I didn't know what to do, so I just sat down (laughs) kind of with them, and they looked at me as if I belonged there somehow, you know. There was this, you know, 18-year-old GI stumbling around, uh, and uh, I always felt as if they had instilled something in me. Really? Yeah, and I left that room thinking that somehow that, this was going to mean something to my life. And then when I went back in 86 and 89 and 90, I met some other monks who I got to spend more time with. They were the friends of uh, writer friends of mine. And I began to then come back and study Buddhism more and more and to practice uh, meditation. And it really began to change my life in dramatic ways. Western medical science says, well, you've got to put that behind you, whereas Buddhism says it's part of who you are now. Make a life from that. I've always felt the sense of being called to something, even as a child, hmm. in this sense that there were passageways to other ways of uh, living, other ways of looking at the world. There were portals that led to other ways of understanding. You know, that was the door that opened, that door called Vietnam. And once I became a writer and, and I could reopen that door, which was an easy thing to do, I had 20 years of nightmares, then there's a way in which there was no turning back, no going back from what I knew was behind that door. You mean in terms of the possibilities of, of living with that and, and making sense of it? That's right. Uh-huh. Yeah, just the possibility of living with it. Or just living. Mm. So you, at some point, walked through this portal uh, back to that place and to the fullness of that place, and you have ended up adopting a Vietnamese girl when she was eight years old. Yes. 
when did that idea take shape in your mind, and, and how did that happen? We began talking about another child and then uh, discovered that we couldn't have another child. And I had been going to Vietnam regularly by this point, and I had visited some orphanages. So I, I broached this idea with my wife, and she was up for trying it. It was a long, arduous, complicated process. So uh, in, against the advice of the adoption agency, I contacted some of my friends in Vietnam, and a month later, we basically got a call from the adoption agency saying, you have to go now, they have someone for you. Uh, I rushed home from my teaching job, and there was a social worker there who had a dossier about this little girl whose name was Nguyen Thi Hang, who was eight years old. And she had a picture, and she said she was going to leave the dossier for us to think about. And I said that wouldn't be necessary, that we wanted her. Just from and, the picture? Uh, from the picture and from, uh, I think, from something inside of us as well, and something inside of me that... Uh, it just felt right, the little bit that I read about her. And uh, once I saw that face, there was no saying no. Ngôi sao nhớ ai, mà sao lấp lánh, soi sáng đường chiến sĩ giữa đèo mây, ngọn lửa nhớ ai. Bruce Weigel's daughter Hine, reading a love poem in her native Vietnamese. Bruce Weigel's latest book is a memoir of his journey to the adoption of Hein. This is how his book, The Circle of Hein, ends. We were all swept up then into a long, frantic afternoon of meetings and ceremonies at several different provincial and district offices. More than once along the way, a small snag would develop because our timing was off according to one official or another. The snag would always be followed by much animated talk and by the sound of voices rising almost too high in their insistence. I didn't worry over it. I was on autopilot. I was most alive, but I don't remember many of the details. I signed a hundred documents, shook hands, and thanked the cool officials. And near what I knew was the end of the official drama, I gave my speech in Vietnam. We finally all piled out of the last jury office and drove a short distance into the village to a small open-air restaurant where four long tables had been pushed together and were already being covered with dishes of food and bottles of beer that two or three young women were carrying out from the kitchen. I wanted to sit next to Hang to use the occasion of the lunch to speak with her, but I could tell that she was still very shy of me. I knew that Hang was not accustomed to eating this way. The meal, paid for by Holt, was very special. Hang stared wide-eyed at the dishes of every food she had probably ever eaten or seen, and some she had probably never seen, piling up on the table. And after some initial hesitation, and at the urging of Van, who knew the value of eating as much as you could when the opportunity presented itself, Hang began to eat. I had never seen a child eat that way before. I smiled to myself as I watched her. I could not imagine where in that small body all of that food was going or how it could be contained there. She ate until the last plate of scraps was taken from the table. I watched her lean back into her chair, bend and stretch her back, and then belch so loudly she made herself laugh. Van scolded her but could not resist laughing as well. The rest happened too quickly, I think, for everyone. We drove the few kilometers back to the orphanage where I collected a small bundle of Heinz clothes and an album of photographs of her friends and her teachers at the orphanage. I said goodbye to Van and promised I would try to care for Heinz as well as she had and that Heinz would be my daughter as if she had been born into our family. I turned to watch as, alone or in pairs, all of the children made their way to where Heinz stood next to Van and said their sweet and quiet goodbyes. I looked hard at Hang's face and I could see some panic in her eyes as our driver started the engine and turned the air conditioner on for a drive back to Hanoi. An impromptu group photograph of the children and staff of the orphanage standing around me in the courtyard was set up but interrupted by a sudden heavy rain. Van put her arm around Hang then and I saw that for the first time they were both crying. I wanted to tell Hang that I loved her because I did. I wanted to tell her that I wished she would come and be part of our family more than anything else 
else in the world, but that if she wanted to stay in being looked and not come home with me, I would understand, and I would love her just as much. I almost made those words come out of my mouth, but I had the sense for once to stay quiet. Van let go of Hying then, and then, looking up into the sky, she pushed her gently toward the van. As we pulled away through the courtyard in the arched gate, I watched Hying look back more than once. Many children were waving in the rain, their small hands open, their small hands through the distance like lotus blossoms opening on the fish pond. From Bruce Weigel's memoir, The Circle of Hein, he's also published several books of poetry, including Song of Napalm and The Unraveling Strangeness. His volume of informal poetry by North Vietnamese soldiers is Captured Documents. Earlier in this hour, you heard a conversation with David Fox, the founder and director of the Immortal Chaplains Foundation in Minnesota. We'd love to hear your reactions to the stories and ideas in this program. Please write to us through our website at speakingoffaith.org. There you'll find background, links, and materials for further reading. You can listen to this program again as well as our previous programs. And while you're at speakingoffaith.org, please sign up for our new weekly email newsletter. It contains reflections on each week's program, book recommendations, and transcript excerpts. You can also write to us at mail at speakingoffaith.org, or you can call Minnesota Public Radio at 1-800-228-7123. This program was produced by Marja Strushko, Brian Newhouse, Alan Strickland, and Mitch Hanley. Our web producer is Trent Gillis. We have assistance from Judy Stone Nunnally. Marja Strushko is the managing producer of Speaking of Faith. Our executive producer is Bill Buesenberg. And I'm Krista Tippett. Please join us again next week. Speaking of Faith is supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Additional support is provided by the Pew Charitable Trusts, sponsoring the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life to explore how religion shapes ideas and institutions. PewForum.org. The George Family Foundation funding innovative ideas in integrative medicine, education, and spirituality in everyday life. And the John Templeton Foundation, exploring the creative interface between science and religion. Audio cassettes and transcripts are available by calling 1-800-777-TEXT or by visiting our website at speakingoffaith.org. This program is a production of Minnesota Public Radio and distributed by Public Radio International. PRI. Public Radio International.